Misfit Toys. Welcome to episode 579 with my guest Patrick McInnes. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bowling balls circling where where your brain should be, all of the chunks of granite where your heart should be, all of the noodles where your dick should be. I don't really like that one. I don't know why I decided to throw that one in there, but... Uh, yeah, I'm not a therapist. I think that's obvious from the first 15 seconds of this little intro. Uh, let's dive into some surveys. Uh, this is from the Fears survey filled out by Daisy, and she writes, I'm afraid my husband will be right and I will have another psychotic break. I assume she means that her husband has said you're going to have another psychotic break rather than she hates her husband being right so much that it causes her to have a psychotic break. Yeah, that, that has to be terrifying, not only for the person that experiences it, but for the, for the loved one. Um, we did uh, an episode years ago with uh, Mark Lukacs, and uh, I think I butchered his name, and, uh, and his wife, uh, Julia, and it, it was a fascinating episode because... It not only focused on her having psychotic episodes, but how he handled it as uh, her husband. And it's really, really... And we did that one in front of a live audience up in Oakland. I miss those those live shows. I miss live shows in general. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Depressed Anti-Gravity. And she writes, uh, or asks, how do you pick out the sound clips you use in the show intro each year? Uh, that's an entire year of podcasts to try and select audio clips from, and I'm really curious what your process is like. Well, it used to be, uh, and she would like to hear more episodes on dissociative identity disorder, uh, as would I. Uh, to me, it's a very, very uh, fascinating disorder, and I think one uh, a disorder that there are a lot of myths and stereotypes and stigma uh, around. So, but getting back to your question... Um, when I used to listen, when I was the only one who would play the episodes back and listen to them and uh, and and take notes, uh, what I would do uh, would be I would I would just um, pause it, highlight that audio clip, and put it into a folder. And at the end of the year, I would have you know maybe a folder of fifty bits to to choose from to put together. And obviously, I'd try to have a variety. Some of them. Um, you know, touching on a variety of subjects. So it doesn't sound like it's all darkness. Uh, I especially like when, when I get a, a guest on who said something really funny and I just think to myself, that is going to be on the montage next year. So I hope that answered your question. Uh, this is from the Fear survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Depressed Pizza. And she writes, Sitting here looking at my life currently, all I feel is fear. I find myself more alone than I've been in years, and I'm afraid of being alone. I'm afraid I'll never get better, and therefore, I will always end up alone. I'm afraid that no one loves me and never will, and even if they did that, I wouldn't believe them and would eventually push them away. I'm afraid that I ruined my life by leaving my last relationship. I'm afraid that I'm not a good person and I'm not capable of becoming one. I'm afraid of the future. I feel like it could be boiled down to to that i am afraid of the future and and i think the other one you could boil this down to is 
I'm afraid that I'm not enough. And boy, are those two common fears. And I don't say that to minimize what you're, what you're feeling. I just want to let you know how not alone you are. Um, because I think those are my two biggest fears as well. And, um, she also writes, I'm afraid of my lack of self-control. I'm afraid of change, of loss. I'm afraid I'll never find myself again like I once had. I'm just afraid. Well, I'm so sorry that you are, that your fear is, is so multifaceted and it sounds like, it sounds like you're stuck. And I think talking to someone would be a good place to start opening up to someone. Um, I don't know about you, but whenever I find out someone can relate to what it is that I'm dealing with, even if it's an imaginative future-based thing I'm tripping on, knowing that somebody else understands it or also experiences it, it just brings me right back uh, to, to earth and it helps me. But sending you, sending you some love. This is uh, from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by Texas Catbird. And she writes, I don't want to forgive my parents for their terrible parenting, for all the painful self-involved things they did and said when we were kids and beyond. People, people often say they did the best they could, but I say fuck that. They should have tried harder when their marriage turned bitter and their kids were self-destructing in the typical ways, if their self-involvement was so pronounced that they couldn't even admit to the pain their children were in, then they weren't trying hard enough. My question is, please tell me it's okay not to forgive my parents. It, it is okay to not forgive your parents. But the important thing is for you to make that decision yourself, not to do it based on what somebody else tells you. My feelings on forgiveness is it's kind of like happiness. It's something that can't be, in my experience, pursued directly. It can only be a byproduct of some other set of actions. Um, Happiness for me can only come if I'm doing a lot of other things, you know, trying to be of service, being honest, taking care of myself, eating right, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And forgiveness for me can only come about when I've processed the anger that I feel at people, um, felt the sadness of things not having been different. Uh, and it was only then that forgiveness organically came to me. There were years, decades that it was not there. Uh, So I get it. And fuck anybody that tells you you should forgive somebody. I think if you're going to say anything to to somebody who's holding on to a resentment is how is it affecting you holding on to this anger? Would it benefit you to process this, to try to find something to let it go, not for the person who's going to potentially be forgiven, but for you to not be walking around holding this poison in. This is from the Fear survey filled out by Bonnie, and she writes, I'm the youngest of three and my husband is older than me. Most of my family is way older. I'm afraid no one will be at my funeral because I've outlived everyone. 
That's interesting because most people's fear of having a sparsely attended funeral uh, is because they weren't liked, but yours is because you're too young. And I don't know if I can muster any empathy for somebody who feels like they're too young, but I'm going to, I'm going to muster it. I'm going to muster it up. And uh, you know what? Maybe you get to be in your 80s and everybody you know is long dead. You go back to high school. You make some friends. You join the cheerleading team. Yeah, you might be a little stiff. Might fracture a hip. I, I can guarantee you, you won't be on the top of the pyramid. This is from the Fears survey filled out by your crazy aunt. Or I guess some people would pronounce it aunt. I've never been able to pronounce it aunt. I just feel, it feels like I should be drinking tea with my pinky out. Uh, she writes, I fear my bipolar too will never allow me to be in a stable romantic relationship. I fear it will scare new friends and potential partners away. That I will unintentionally hurt those I love. Thank you for that. And, you know, my thought when I read this was, yeah, there's always the potential for that stuff to happen, uh, especially if, if uh, you know, um, we need meds and we're not taking them. Uh, but another thing that's possible is it can actually be something that brings you closer with someone. You know, assuming that you're being responsible about your your illness and you're doing what you should be doing or trying to do what you should be doing, um, then it, it, it gives people around you a chance to show up for you, whether you're succeeding or not. It gives them a chance to reveal their character. But if we just push people away because we're afraid of disappointing them, we never get to have those those incredible moments where, where we just... Don't feel alone. This is from the love survey filled out by a person who calls themselves dog person, cat person, can be both, question mark. I've grown up with dogs and currently work with them, but I'd always wanted to have my own cats. I've come to love cats through the two kittens that I adopted while working at the SPCA. I loved watching them grow in age as well as into their personalities. I love that when I go to the bathroom, my cats chase after me, meowing, thinking I have a bug. This is where I let them hunt the bugs I occasionally catch for them. I love that when I just have to go pee and I close the door on my cat, Cake, she gets very talkative as if she's throwing a fear of missing outfit outside. More recently, she's caught on that the bathroom has multiple functions, and I love exiting the restroom to look over and see her exiting the litter area. Bathroom buddies! Exclamation point. It's fantastic. I also love the timing that this um, interviewing the fear of missing out guy, the guy who coined the term fear of missing out, and you do a, a little FOMO on your survey. Uh, <laughs> this is from the fear survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Pencil Dick Tracy. Um, and he writes, uh, I posted this in the shame survey, survey too, but I'm deeply afraid that I'm addicted to my depression and don't know who I am without it. So I'm afraid of quote, getting better because then who would I even be? I would say, look at that as a positive. You get to be surprised by something positive 
rather than being stuck in fear and trying to control it. You know, we have so we all have so many amazing positive surprises in store for us. But all we think about are the bad ones. Said the pot to the kettle. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Uh, I had an interesting session with uh, my counselor, Heidi, uh, this last Monday. Um, she, had me, she had me take a checklist, uh, go over a checklist of codependency warning signs. And I was like, yeah, 14 of them, I'll you know, probably check three or four. I checked 12. So she's, she's got me reading the book Codependent No More. And uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of therapy, obviously. Uh, but online therapy in particular. And uh, BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. So give it a try and see why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp and you guys, Mental Illness Happy Hour listeners, get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash mental. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash mental. We are sponsored this week by Squarespace. Maybe you're putting a website together. Maybe you want to sell some stuff. Maybe you need some marketing tools. Squarespace is your all-in-one platform to build a beautiful online presence and run your business. I've used it. I put a website together, paul-gilmartin.squarespace.com. I have music I've done and pictures of dogs that I love. Uh, So check it out. It took me about three hours to do the whole thing. And... uh, very intuitive, great templates, drag and drop, super easy. Uh, You can do e-commerce, you can have Squarespace member-only areas, Um, you can have analytics, all kinds of stuff. So if you're interested, go to squarespace.com for a free trial, and when you're ready to launch, go to squarespace.com slash mental to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. That's squarespace.com slash mental. And then uh, finally, we have a struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Chi Chia. And uh, he battles depression, ADD, anxiety, and PTSD. And a snapshot from his life, he writes, Walking downtown and passing an older woman who smelled just like my mom, a combination of her perfume and cigarettes. Then being unable to get the image of my mom's dead body laying next to her bed where my brother had put her after killing her. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be... I'm I'm ashamed. A sexual being. Deeply ashamed. You are... I want to live fucking depressed. But how? I can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without risking being hurt. Push it all down. You can't go around it. Ireland, like we don't do mental health talk. Through is the only path. No one is ever alone. There's somebody else out there. Don't forget experiencing the same thing as you. That the places you feel most broken now. Just 
gotta look for them. Will one day be your greatest strength. And when you find them, it's a great feeling. And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about <laughs> making that joke, but that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Ah, you're in the right place. I am here with Patrick McInnes, who coined the term FOMO, fear of missing out. Uh, you're an author. Uh, you speak to corporations, entrepreneurs. Um, I got to imagine you're also on a street corner with a bullhorn spreading the word. <laughs> <laughs> Always. Thank you for uh, for coming in to to talk about it. We were t- before we started recording. Um, we were talking a bit about a breakdown that you had in 2008 when the financial crisis uh, happened. Talk about that if you're comfortable. I am. Uh, it wasn't for a long time, actually. And in fact, I didn't talk about it to anybody for years. And uh, but I learned I learned how to how to do that. And I think what really happened was I if you. I was working on Wall Street in 2008 at a division of AIG. AIG blew up very prominently. An insurance company? Yes. And I had stock that fell 97%. And I remember watching the stock ticker, watching it go down every day. It's like I was was compulsively looking at it. And I have a real bias towards safety. I grew up in a small town, kind of a blue-collar kind of upbringing. Uh, and so the idea of losing all of these things, the stability that I so craved was, it was very difficult and it, it was very stressful. And within a short period of time, kind of the wheels fell off the bus. You know, I ended up, uh, I was in a couple weeks later in West Virginia at a board meeting and I woke up in the middle of the night with just sweats like my entire body was covered in, in sweat and then I had swollen glands and then I ended up at a doctor they took my blood pressure and he said like are you using illicit drugs and I was like no <laughs> I'm not just Wall Street yeah that's an illicit drug and he, I ended up having to wear a heart monitor for a while and then I ended up just really sick for a long time I was at a I was unwell for six months and then I ended up actually going to India for a friend's wedding and spending two weeks there. And I swear to God, it's so funny. I got on the plane. I had blurry vision. I had all these issues. And I got back after those two weeks away and I was kind of back to normal. It was really crazy. Uh, And they never really figured out what was wrong with me. But that whole experience was such a liberating, powerful experience. It's really been a great teacher of Mm -hmm. mine. And I'd never been through that before. I'd never really had a challenge like that. So... It wasn't easy at all, and I used to feel very embarrassed about it, so I didn't talk about it. Did you talk to a therapist or any mental health professional, or you just kind of compartmentalized it and moved on? I didn't think of it as a mental health thing. Do I you now? I, definitely. Yeah. I thought of it as a physical health thing, yeah. but I didn't. I just didn't have the context to think about what was happening, so I was really squarely rooted in, like, I need to go to the doctor, right. the, the doctor doctor, not the mental health doctor. Was Mo Greenberg, was he the head of AIG? Yes, exactly. My dad used to work with him. Uh, My dad was an insurance executive for CNA Insurance. And when Mo went to go found AIG, he asked my dad to come along with him. Wow. And my mom told me after the financial crisis, she said uh, that he was considering it 
and he said to her, I think I'm going to turn him down because he just skates a little too much on thin ice for my comfort. In other words, he, he was not the most ethical guy. And yeah. does that ring true? Yeah. Well, you know what happened was, I mean, just the, if you want to take another level up, he definitely run the business in a very murky way. And it was run and it was, it, he was like kind of a control freak, but also did a lot of crazy things. But he actually was gone when AIG blew up because Elliot Spitzer uh, had been investigating the company and then he sort of left and it was just, they brought in his number two who was kind of an, a very weak leader because, you know, a guy like Greenberg is never going to have a strong guy or lady beneath right. him, right? And so then when AIG blew up, there was such weak leadership. So yeah, it all compounded and I always think like Elliot Spitzer also, I'm just like, <laughs> I blame him a little too. So why do, you, why do you blame him? Because Elliot Spitzer was on this crusade I think to enhance his political career at the time. And, you know, he had his own flaws. So listen, at the end of the day, there were, there's, if you dig deep enough in any business setting, there's always things you can find. And clearly there were issues, but AIG was already very weakened. And I, it was my view and I still is that sort of AIG was weakened and it became the scapegoat for the rest to, to sort of bail out the rest of wall street in 2008. And as somebody who worked there, I was sort of like, <laughs> I was like, this is, this is a bummer. <laughs> right. Right. I definitely have some some strong opinions on uh, Wall Street and investigations, and I'm probably on the other side of the coin from you. But uh, you know, it's not something I'm close to. It's not something I know in great detail. But in in my mind, it it fucks with me mentally and emotionally because it it is you know driving. It's the horse driving the cart. Of what happens, and I, you know, had a, a. I could see retiring in my future in two thousand seven, two thousand eight, and uh, it's just like my four hundred one k just uh, disappeared, and I, it it's, you know, what fourteen years later, and it's about back to where it was in two thousand and seven, and. I know firms like Goldman Sachs made a killing on it. And there's so much predatory behavior and such a lack of oversight, in my opinion, on on Wall Street that, um, I don't know, it's, it's, it's something that really bothers me. If, you know, if for some reason, if you have a tie, you're not going to go to jail or you're going to be one of the four people that go to jail. I agree. I, I think what you're saying is fair and correct. And it was my feeling as well. Like I left Wall Street after this experience because I I had believed that, especially coming out of college, that that was the thing to do. That's where the smart people went. That was where the action was. And I went onto that treadmill. And then, you know, a decade later when everything fell apart, my whole faith in that as, you know, I sort of was like, you know, it is worth all the sacrifice and the long it's hours. It's the smart play for yeah. financial safety. And I'm going to sacrifice all of these other parts of my life to to have this. And also because when you're in that system, 
it's, there's all this affirmation about it. Like, well, I worked a hundred hours last week. Well, that's great. Well, I worked 101 and you know, it's, and oh, it, it, it becomes this really messed up thing to live with. Really messed of. up. Nobody yeah. talks about their relationship suffering in a way that is, is vulnerable and realistic. Now, oh, the girlfriend's, you know, bugging me because I worked a hundred hours this week. You know, I'm, I'll buy her a ring. It, it's just, so gross some of the stories that i hear about work workaholism you know as americans we really enable workaholism uh i remember just to the story that really around this time i got out of there right and i started doing my own thing and became an entrepreneur and i was like screw this this thing doesn't work and i will not go through this again like i like it's like you know the classic thing like fool me once shame on you fool mm -hmm. me twice shame on me i was i knew then that for the life that i wanted to live that i would never be in that position again and a friend of mine came to me a couple years later who was at one of the big banks and he was like i got to get out of here and i saw that you did it can you tell me about how you did it and he told me he had a small child and his, you know, married and he was working in this bank and he said, the only joy that I get on a weekly basis is I get a, a little break and I go to the gym and I sit in the steam room and I have 15 minutes to decompress. Wow. And that's all I look forward to because of, you know, the fact that I'm failing as a father and as a husband and I, and you know what happened to that guy? Hmm. They cut him loose. He gave them everything and one day they just fired him. And he has turned around and gotten, he's done very well, moved to a new city, started a bunch of new ventures. He's doing great. And, you know, you think about that. So anybody who's listening, if you feel trapped in that, that terrible hamster wheel, mm -hmm. it, there is another side to it. It's just that sometimes we're so invested in the system, we can't see it. We, can, we can't. And the, the, the unknown is so terrifying to us. We will just sit in the stinking known rather than risking the unknown. And to me, that's kind of where faith and spirituality and finding our authenticity comes into play. Easier said than done. But I think one of the greatest gifts you can have as a human being is to be a seeker, to be curious, and to be willing to uh, listen to the voice in your head that says this is this is not who you are or trying something new that feels good, but maybe the money isn't there yet. And saying to yourself, this feels like it's where I'm supposed to be. Um, that I've, I've, I have been blessed with that. And, uh, I'm so grateful. I was studying to be a doctor in college cause I thought that's the, that's the safe play. And then I, one day I had an epiphany. I just imagined myself as a doctor having no way to express myself creatively. And I imagine what if, what if I'm 30, 35 and I get cancer? How, I, I imagined myself really regretting not having taken any chances. You know, I didn't have kids, don't have kids now. And, uh, I took some acting classes, fell in love with it and changed my major to theater. And I was lucky enough to have parents that supported me. But I often look back and think, what if I hadn't taken that leap of faith? What if I hadn't listened to the instinct in me that, that said, you only get one shot at this. Really explore who you are. So who who did you find out you are that you weren't getting in touch with when you were working on Wall Street? 
It's it's a great question because I had no clue. I so what happened was after that traumatic experience, I knew I needed to make a change. I wasn't strong enough. I think to make a change, we need to be physically strong and mentally strong. And I was not those things. So I took a period of like recovery. Uh, I got in shape. I started running all the time and just sort of, I mean, I became a compulsive runner. So probably I was just, you know, switching totally deck chairs on the Titanic. 100%. But it really helped me to feel powerful again after feeling so weak. It was awesome. And then when that happened, I decided I wanted to leave and I had, I had saved and saved and saved all my career. And so I had, you know, a decent amount of runway. And so I took a sabbatical, which was something I had never intended to do. And, um, I was able to negotiate in a way that I could, I had some ongoing work with my old company, but really I took a sabbatical and my brother is a jazz musician and a very creative person and who's taken his own path. And so he, I remember we were having lunch at this place in the West Village in New York City called La Bonniere, which many people probably have been to. And he said, you should get up every day for six months, not knowing what you're going to do. And I thought, well, that's crazy. Why would I do that? And then I did that for a year. And what happened was I deprogrammed myself from all of the expectations and all of the things that I had come to believe that were important. And I was able to sort of clean out the trash and have some room, which was, that was very powerful. However, then I had a new problem, which was like, what's next? So uh, just walk me back a a, a second. What were you throwing out and what were you taking in? So I was throwing out the, the need for affirmation. For people to, to say to people, well, I work on Wall Street and I work in private equity and all this sort of stuff, like stuff that I thought was really important to me, the identity that I had assumed as this, because that's the whole identity. Well, I work in private equity and I live in a certain neighborhood and I go to the Hamptons and I have these things and all like that material stuff that, that you know, you realize when the chips are down, like doesn't matter. Like I don't, I don't need, I don't need those things. And, and so that was what I, I really cleaned the house of that. And by the way. I don't even know how I got, I mean, my parents did not teach me these things. I come from a really sort of like simple part of the U.S. My parents have, they're focused on the, they're they're not materialistic people. So I don't know. I just got corrupted by the universe as it were, my own fault though. But I will take responsibility. So that was what I emptied. And then I think what I learned was to slow down, to listen, to be curious, to slow down physically and mentally or just Mm -hmm. mentally. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't meditating at that point, but I was just giving myself more space to to not to just have an empty mind and to think and to just be available to opportunity. To ignore the sixty minutes clock ticking in your head. Yes, right. Feeling like you're three steps behind everybody else in the universe. Yes, having like unscheduled free space for contemplation. And I did a lot of that and a lot of reading and thinking and seeing people. And I found, and if anybody's quit a job that they hated, you might know what I'm talking about. I would get up in the morning and I would start my day and then I'd feel this deep sense of joy, like almost overwhelmed. Like I almost want to like tear up because I was like, I did it. I'm free. And you were true to yourself. Yeah. You took care of yourself. Yeah. I never thought about it that way, but it was that feeling of like agency. And so that made me 
that's what I, I think I just sort of deprogrammed myself and then filled that in with a sense of possibility. And the idea, like I'd never thought about doing something on my own. I was afraid of that. No, that sounds scary. And then I started to think, well, maybe I should do something. Maybe I should think outside the box. And so for me, that sense of possibility was like super, it was, that was what I filled myself up with. So were there any moments along the way, I'm sure there were, that led you to where you are and kind of uh, getting in the headspace where you began to focus on the the pandemic of fear of missing out? Yeah. So the fear of missing out, actually, uh, the story behind that is that this was actually, we got to go back in the time machine to the year 2003. I I have been living in New York City. I was a witness to 9-11. Really? I was living in lower Manhattan at the time. And I actually, I mean, I saw it with my own eyes. I was down my street corner on 16th Street. And when that happened, it's, we, you know, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary now uh, as we tape this. I just remember just feeling like nothing was assured anymore. Like everything you thought about the world was in question. Yeah. People who aren't old enough to remember what 9-11 felt like, you know, and I viewed it on TV from California and it, it, it shook me deeply. Um, it, it, there was the world before 9-11 and the world after 9-11. Uh, what do you remember on that day? If you're comfortable talking about sure. it? Sure. Uh, yeah. And I think if you, if you're listening and you didn't remember the pandemic I don't want to compare the two. They're very different, but I've had those, some of those feelings again, and I recognize them from that time. The feeling of just that, like the world has changed irrevocably and you don't know where it's going. So I woke up late. I had taken my GMAT my, for my, to get into business school the day before. And I'd gone out celebrating with my friends. And so when the first, my alarm went off and I, I was going to, I'm going to go into work late. My alarm went off and I heard that a small, they said like a small plane has hit the trade center, a commuter, like a little four seater. And so I was not particularly worried. I actually hit the snooze button. And when it came on again, the second plane had hit. So I jumped out of bed. I turned on the television. I ran to the corner and then I saw, well, you know, the building in flames. And so I was obviously. And how far were you? I was about, I would say, let's see, it's about. Mile and a half, two miles maximum. Yeah. Uh, uh, basically, Greenwich Village versus versus Tribeca World, mm -hmm. World Financial Center, and so Trade Center, excuse me. And so it was, it was very visible. And of course, I, I, I went home and I took a shower. And this is the part that blows my mind. Still, I went to the office. I worked in Rockefeller Center. I took the subway to the office, and when I got there, I walked in, looked out the window, and the first tower fell. And so, what do you remember thinking or feeling in that moment? Nothing, numb. just numb. Yeah, which I think is really common, and for a lot of us, myself included, we feel like a bad person mm -hmm. when we don't. You know, I I remember seeing people crying and thinking, "Why can't I cry about this?" It, I was sad. I was afraid, but there was something in me that couldn't connect emotionally to it. And I remember just watching footage over and over and over again, trying to feel something. Mm. And, and I couldn't. Yes. That's how I felt. I felt, I felt just like I just couldn't process it. And 
and I had friends uh, immediately tried to contact friends and family. It was very difficult that day. And and how? Um, oh, you said you worked in Rockefeller. Okay. Yeah, so we were. I was up on on right in Rock Center. Uh, I eventually left and went uh, back to my place, and I was right by uh, the what was then the St. Vincent's Hospital. So I went to see what was going on there. There were no people. All these doctors waiting outside. Nobody coming. That's so eerie. It was horrendous. And and in fact, and then I found out we managed to contact a friend of mine who was caught up in it. Um, he was okay. Then another friend, I went to another friend's house and her roommate or office mate, excuse me, had, we didn't know it yet. She had died. And so we were worried about her. And so long story short is I got in, in the subway and I went to Queens and stayed with my brother because I just didn't want to be in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. And we, it was really comforting to spend the night with him. But, but it just felt, you know, it just felt like we would never go back. And in fact, we have not. So I guess I was right. <laughs> And so where you were living, did, did you got all that dust and all, all of that stuff they, or did it blow the other way? They closed Lower Manhattan two streets below where I was. And so you could still go. And in fact, we would go to dinner down there and we're walking around a lot. But but I was able to go home the next day and stay there. But I mean, the, everything smelled like burning. I hear people say that were there that they can still smell that smell. Yeah, it's... You'll never forget it because it doesn't smell natural. It smells like the burning of man-made items. And it smelled for days and days. And yet, and I think everybody was so hungry for human connection that, I mean, I went out every night that week with my friends to dinner or to drinks or whatever. We just wanted, wanted to be together all the time. And I think um, the thing about New Yorkers too is we just kind of carry on. So we also just tried to get back to, you know, I was in the office two days later, believe it or not. And then we had a bomb scare. So we all ran out again, but that was probably fictional. But, you know, it was crazy. Do you remember any conversations you had with friends that week or afterwards that reflected a shift in a conscience, conscious sense of existential dread or fear? Absolutely. And I think I always look at – I had lived in Brazil the summer before – and I always look back at that time as like this carefree time. I was like, well, that's before I realized how crazy the world could be. And it was just like so carefree, you know? And I, I think many of us, we had grown up in such peace and prosperity in the U.S. Mm-hmm. We were very lucky that way, very privileged that way. And then overnight to realize, I mean, there were so many, think about all of the implications of that day. We're seeing it now with Afghanistan, like all of the things that were set off. We didn't know where it was going, but we did know was that, we no longer felt safe and that our psyche as a country was changing rapidly. And I think it's like a car hit you in your living room. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, all bets are off. Yeah. <laughs> and you don't have to be a New Yorker. And people felt, I think people felt it more strongly far away because if you see it with your own eyes and you're able to understand like, okay, this is crazy what happened, but the street is still there and the sky is still blue and we can continue living our lives, albeit in a tremendously altered environment. At least you sort of are able to dimension that for yourself. If you've just seen the abstract of it, your head and your mind can go to so many places and you create scenarios that are disconnected from reality, which is very natural to do, but then it just becomes too much to take. So I think 
I always feel like people who weren't there that day felt it even more deeply than wow, those that, were. that had never occurred to me. And I, I would never say that out loud to somebody who was there. Um, but that's interesting that you, that you feel that, mm. that way. Yeah. I always, whenever I see somebody's home and you, you visit somebody and they've got like a picture of the twin towers in their home, that always strikes me because as I don't know if many, maybe some New Yorkers do, but I, I haven't seen that ever because I think we were there. We know what that wasn't, but for some people that, you know, it's like, you know how it is. It's like when you didn't see it, there's just a lot more room to imagine even crazier stuff that maybe that, mm-hmm. you, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, where, where did I detour mm. us with, uh, so what does that have to do with FOMO, that? right? What right. does that have to do with FOMO? So this is what happened. So as a result of that, I just really felt like carpe diem every day is, is, is to be enjoyed and to, and how far away were you from quitting your job? I had taken my GMAT. I was about to apply to graduate school. So I got in, let's see, so that was November, sorry, excuse me, 9-11, so September. Never forget. Yeah, I got it. You just forgot. <laughs> That's true. You're, I, you're a monster. I am getting, I'm going to get hate mail. Um, <laughs> I will not forget. But um, I got into business school, I guess, early the next year, and I left my job in June. And and I think at that point, I was sort of like, well, I'm going to take the summer off and travel, and I'm, you know, I've saved this money, I'm going to do all this stuff, I go to school, and I'm... I had never, you know, again, I'm from this small town in Maine. The idea of going to Harvard Business School, that was not, I just Is never. Is that where you went? I did. Okay. So I didn't ever think that, I just didn't think that I would do that. Or I didn't know people who had done that. And then you get up to Boston and you're in this like amazing place with really great people. And there's so many opportunities and it's so fun and everybody's worked. So they've saved money so you can do trips and so I just, you know, I got there and I was like, I have, I, you know, I have no business being here. I never thought I would be here. I had this imposter kind of syndrome thing, but, but, you know, I'm going to make the most of this. And I tried to do everything all the time and I was overwhelmed all the time. And I realized that I wasn't the only one. Everybody was triple and quadruple booked every day, all day long, every night. And I started calling this culture. FOMO, fear of missing out. And I wrote an article in the school newspaper in 2004 called Social Theory at HBS, McGinnis's Two Foes, all about FOMO and another term that I came up with called FOBO, which is fear of a better option. And I wrote that article and then slowly but surely it made it to the dictionary 10 years later. So so it's all connected and I think it's kind of it's kind of blows my mind that it is connected, but that's how that's what went on in my head to write that article. That started it all. So many questions. Uh, so you were still probably four years away from kind of having your epiphany that uh, you know I need to get I need to get out of this Precisely. rat race. You were taking advantage of the fact that you graduated from Harvard Business School. I imagine Wall Street just snaps those people up. Um, talk about. Um, what you've learned, what you've kind of observed. I, I would imagine that you've had a lot of conversations with people about FOMO and heard their experiences with it, how it affects them, the way they think. Um, what what have you, in all your conversations about this and writing about it, just share some of that stuff with us. So when I wrote the article, it was in the humor section of the newspaper. The, our student newspaper, The Harvest, it's called. 
and it was satire. And it's if you go, you can go find it online if you Google social theory at HBS McGinnis's two foes. It's it's pretty. I think it's pretty funny. Um, <laughs> and but then and it was kind of jokey because in the beginning, this was pre-internet, by the way. There was no social media when I was inventing FOMO. Mark Zuckerberg was at the same moment a mile away from me inventing the first version of Facebook. And you know, social media has made FOMO a thing that all of us feel. But at the time, we didn't have that. And to be honest with you, I view this as a very sort of like high-class problem to be made fun of. But of course, what I've learned, because I didn't realize it gotten global in nature until more recently. And when I started thinking about it more and researching it more, I found it was quite shocking. The amount of clinical psychology, the, the, the psychologists who have studied FOMO and have studied its effects on people it's it's really quite shocking how how much it affects us and how how difficult it can be for people emotionally it has and as and of course i've i've met so many people now talked to people interview people i talked to people in my podcast fomo sapiens and i've realized that it for me the the biggest driver is there's two big things that i would encourage people to just keep in mind that they're really important about it number 1 is when you feel fomo you know, you're completely externally focused on something out there that looks you know, some shite, bright, shiny thing. You have no idea if that thing corresponds to reality. The thing that's in your head, this dream that you have, you have no idea if it corresponds to reality. If you do that thing, will it be what you thought it was going to be? And that disconnect between reality and the perception that's in your head is very difficult place to be. And that's part of the pathology of FOMO. Mm -hmm. The other thing I would say is that when we have FOMO, we have reference anxiety. We are comparing ourselves to others and we're devaluing what we have. So we're so focused on that beautiful thing that we want to do or that experience we want to have that we think, oh, what I'm doing or having right now isn't good enough. And so that causes real problems of self-esteem. And you see that with kids, but it's not just the kids. Adults feel it too. Oh, absolutely. I know so many people that can't get off of social media and yet it makes them feel terrible mm -hmm. it makes them you know there there's the saying that it's comparing your uh what your how do, how do they say it your insides to someone's highlight reel something like that totally. you're you, you know um it's it's so true yet it's so human to want to find some measurement of how we're doing i mean it would be interesting if there was some metric that could let us know how we're doing. Actually, I don't think I would want to know yeah. because maybe we're all doing exactly as we're supposed to be doing. I don't know. Sorry, I'm going down multiple rabbit holes. You got, it sounds you like got Black Mirror, my friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there was an episode of Black Mirror where people were given points and mm -hmm. when they did something wrong, they'd lose points and the points determine like where you get to live and stuff. And it is interesting to think about how that would work because you could obviously be like everything else can be corrupted so quickly. Yeah. Yeah. So what advice would you give to uh, somebody who can't get off of social media because they feel like they're going to miss out on something? So it is a very common problem. And in fact, the numbers tell us that 56% uh, of people feel FOMO when they're away from social media because, listen, you can have FOMO without social media. I can throw you uh, in a, you know, <laughs> in a in a dark closet, take away your phone, and you can have social, uh, so you can have FOMO. Think about the keeping up with the Joneses. 
Mm-hmm. Right. That's a comic strip from a hundred years ago. That's kind of like old fashioned FOMO. Right. Yeah. yeah. So, so that is, it's part of our human nature. Let's, let's all acknowledge that. However, it is our, our phones and the apps and the social media that really makes it sort of, uh, crippling for so many people. That's why we needed a new word because of all of these things. And so I think number one is recognize dealing with FOMO consists of two elements, really three. The first is to think about what's happening when we feel FOMO independent of the devices, right? FOMO is the anxiety that we feel based on the perception there's something better out there than what we're doing right now. It is also the fear of being excluded from a collective beneficial experience. So part one is about, you know, it looks so great. Like I have, it's aspirational. You know, I want to be Kim Kardashian or whatever. I'm sure uh, I probably, you don't. I, I can't imagine a single listener. Uh, I know. I, bad example. that way. Well, for this podcast. Yes. But yes. I, you know, I want to have the perfect family, right. whatever it right. is. You know, I want to go to Italy on vacation and take pretty pictures. We all have these feelings, Right. right. The second is about, I don't want to be left out. Everybody's doing this. Everybody's watching the Super Bowl. Everybody bought the new iPhone. I'm not doing life right. Right. So when we do that, you know, that's what I call the herd. It's the idea that everybody's running in one direction and we don't want to be left out of the herd. So to deal with those two things, the aspirational one's really about unpacking, like, is this thing as good as it looks? Is it even, could I afford to do it? Can I, can I even do it? Is What would the trade-offs be? Like really just thinking critically about that thing. And if we do that, the vast majority of times we realize like, eh, it's not all it's cracked up to be. The second is about thinking about motivation. Why am I doing this? Mm, I is, love that. Right? Like is where's the agency that I have in this? What is my intent? Precisely. Because underneath that usually is some for, some form of fear either of losing something or not getting something. Yes, that is exactly right. And so, so many times when I feel FOMO, I recognize it's just like, it's, it's because of other people doing that, that I feel that I should be with or keep up with or whatever. And that when you start to realize that you just start to ask yourself like, well, do I want to be a follower? No, I don't like life's too short to be a follower. Nobody was like, you're so successful. You're the best follower ever. Right. <laughs> Nobody says that. And so it's important to, to know that. So those are the, that's kind of what I call, you know, that's about choosing, having the power to choose what you actually want. But then the other part of FOMO. So great. You, you figured out what you want. Now you have to miss out on the rest. And that's the part where we think about devices because our phones uh, are a superpower charged way to distract us from doing what we actually want to do because then we're getting all this data that starts to convince us, oh no, well actually, you know, I should do this or that. And so that's where I encourage people, you know, it's, it's, there's, I'm not going to tell you anything that you haven't heard before, but you know, really think about how you're dealing with your devices, how much time you're spending on devices, how you're using them, how they make you feel. So I have quit a number. I've actually left text groups. I've left social media in certain ways because I realize I, when I think about it and I, and I stop for a minute, does this make me feel good? Right. No. And so it's, it's, and, and, you know, another part of that of course is mindfulness and meditation, which is something that I've embarked on in the last couple of years. And I have found that, by meditating every day, I don't do a ton of meditation, 10 minutes, you know, it's mm-hmm. not like I'm, you know, living up in the clouds with the, the Dalai Lama, right. you know, I, I, I'm not even, you know, it's not, I think sometimes we think it has to be such a big deal. No, right. but 
ever since I did that, my ability to freak out has gone down by like 90%. Wow. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me though. Mm -hmm. It doesn't surprise me. One of the things that I love about meditation is even if you're meditating quote unquote badly, in other words, you're just thinking about laundry and the bank and you're not focused on your breathing because you forgot to think that Mm -hmm. it introduces you to what you're worried about so that you can then tackle that problem. Look at the fears that are underneath it. You know, as my therapist would say, look at the facts on the ground and there's a good chance that you're worried about it because of something in your past or what you anticipate the future to hold. And if you think about it, the moment we're in right now, could we have predicted it five years ago? No. Then why are we wasting time thinking about where we're going to be five years from now? And it, it comes to the fact that as I think about that, had I not started a meditation practice three years ago, I would have had a much harder time the last year and a half. Uh, and also, I think when we think about meditation, which again, I think you make the great point, it doesn't, like we think it has to, we have like meditation FOMO, like, well, if I don't do it this way, right. then it doesn't count. And I had this interesting experience recently. I, I did a hip, a hip hypnosis and I've done it a bunch of times over the years to, to help me with breaking habits or changing mindset. And I, again, I'm not like a super uh, woo-woo kind of guy. It just works for me. And so I went to see my hypnotist because I have this like crazy and unhealthy fear of going to the doctor mm-hmm. that I've had since a child. And I was like, I'm done with that. I'm going to move on. And when we got into the – he you know, he puts you in a trance. And I laid down. I was in the trance in like 20 seconds and I could feel it because I've done it before. And I was asking him. I was like, "How? You know, what was that? I got in so deep. And he was like, well, now you know that you can do it. So when you meditate – you know, just try to dig a little deeper, right? And I thought that was an interesting insight about meditation because I think sometimes we will get into a, a pattern of mindset that like the way we're doing it right now is where it is, but always keep in mind that like any other practice, you can go deeper and deeper and deeper and you'll see more benefits over time. But as you mentioned, even just petting your dog for 10 minutes gets you into a place where you are reaping the benefits of mindfulness. Two things... Uh that I think about when I'm feeling that sense of social abandonment or that I'm not doing life right or I'm not successful enough or active enough, I I think about, this is so fucked up, but I think about how many rock stars I admire have committed suicide who seemingly had it all. And the other thing that I think about is uh, the guy that, uh, Steve Case, the guy that... uh, founded AOL Mm. he was giving an interview and he was talking about uh, Davos that conference that they do in Switzerland every year with the heads of industry and all the muckety mucks and he was saying to this journalist I don't know why I come here every year because whatever room I'm in I feel like I'm in the wrong room and I thought this is a guy who's probably worth you know a half a billion dollars is it Davos? All this stuff that you think will bring you peace. And he's still got FOMO. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, if you're solving for power and money and influence, you're solving for the wrong things. Those things are great. They can make you, you know, they can give you things. But if you're, the reality is that like, nobody says like, oh, I made enough money. Find me the person who's, maybe they say, I'm going to give away my money. I have enough for me or whatever. But I think as you get 
more and more wealthy and powerful. And you see this all the time. Like the former head of McKinsey who was on the board of Goldman Sachs went to jail for insider trading because he was like, well, I'm the poorest guy in, in my country club or whatever. And so I need more and more and more. And that reference anxiety, it it, the more, um, I, I don't have research to, to back this up, but I think anecdotally you'll go with me on this. It's like the more people you know and the more connected you are, the more chances you have every day to feel like you're not good enough. That, that rings true. That absolutely rings true. And I think even if you get to the place that you imagined would bring you happiness, then you're obsessed with losing it. Yeah. People say all the time, I was talking to somebody very successful. And he said, I can't remember who now, but he said to me, Patrick, I've been to the top of the mountain. There's nothing there. Oh, Prince said that. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. I, well, I don't know if he was the one that originated it, but I've heard it attributed to him. Okay. Well, rest in peace, Prince, because I agree. I mean, I think so many times we achieve things that we, maybe a little thing even, it's like, I want to learn how to juggle. I don't know. Um, and you're like, well, I did that now. Like what's next? Right. And I think that's, there is no even if you hike to we hike to top of a mountain, it's true. You get there and you're like, all right, what's next? I think about all the people <laughs> who have, you know, paid seventy five thousand dollars to summit Everest, and you know, two years from now, has it, it has it improved their life? Maybe it has, but um, I don't know. I don't know. There, there's also the that motivation in us um, to move forward. And to grow, which I think is healthy, but you know, there's a fine line where all of a sudden it becomes something that's unhealthy. For me, the the thing that I think is really important to think about is human connection, because there, it was for me, it was that missing ingredient: being vulnerable, being of help to other people, you know, being conscious of, you know, what my intent is. Is is this? action I'm in, is it making the world a better place or a worse place? And that consciousness has changed everything. I was never able to get moments where I felt like I am where I'm supposed to be. But since doing that, I feel that way so, so much more often. And it's increased the quality of my, my life. And I make mo less money than, than I used to, but I feel a lot more peace. And it's it comes from human connection, love, um, having conversations with people that are uh, that used to terrify me. The thought of them does that any of that ring true for you? Most definitely. I think uh, I think it's obviously. Listen, it's really easy to sit here and say like, "Oh, money isn't that important when you have your basics covered." So obviously you know, there's inequality, people don't have what they need. And it's really hard to think beyond that when you, your stomach isn't full. So let's just put that on the table. But beyond that, my, my experience has been, and I see this with so many people that I know and talk to is I think the, what drives happiness for so many people is a combination of autonomy, feeling like you have a say in what you do in your life. It's about being surrounded with the right people. And there's a famous study, I'm, I'm, I imagine you've talked about it here on the show, that was done at Harvard University where they they looked at people over, you know, the graduates of the school over like their entire lives and interviewed them kind of like every 10 years or whatever. And they found that the strongest indicator of happiness and, and health and all kinds of other important factors was human connection and the quality of human connection. And so 
and I've, as somebody who's read a decent amount of positive psychology, I didn't even you know know what that was two years ago, but I got turned on to some of the stuff that I've read. And you know, you read these books and and it all makes sense. These are things that like these are just kind of basic human truths, but we are tricked away from them. We're tricked to focus on all of the golden calves because of you know the FOMO and and all these other things that, that push us away from you know the basics that we should value. Any particular books that have helped you? Yeah. So so many good ones, but my favorites, I love a book called The Happiness Advantage by Sean Acor. How do you spell his last name? A-C-H-O-R. Okay. So I only discovered him because I was at my 20, was it 20 years now? Gosh, I'm getting old. I think it was my 20 year business school reunion or 15 year business school reunion. And uh, it was 15. And they had a guy, the guy who teaches the, who created the happiness course at Harvard came and spoke at the business school. And of all of the seminars, that was the one that was the most attended by like multiples. They had to have four overflow rooms. So I went to that and I loved it. And I thought it was amazing. And Sean wrote a book. He had taught that class. So he wrote a book about the lessons of that class. So that's the happiness advantage. And he was nice enough to blurb my, my book that came out last year, which was such a thrill to me. Cause I like cold called him. It was like, mm-hmm. Sean, I love your work. And then the other one is Flourish by Martin Seligman. So he's sort of the father of, of positive psychology. And I read both of those in like December of 2020, no, 2019, like right before mm. everything went crazy. And the other book, um, which I love, is Man's Search for Meaning. Oh, one of the most profound books ever. I, I don't know of any other book that is packed with quotes that are so deep and so truthful. Oh, yeah. I read that. I started reading that. A friend of mine told me to start reading, I guess, early pandemic, actually. So I picked it up in like March, April 2020. And I always compare it to eating cheese because like you can only eat a little at a time before you get too full. So you have to like, it's only 120 pages, but you have to sort of like savor it. It's so packed. Oh, it is the best book I've ever read, yeah. probably. I would also put uh, A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle up Ooh, there. I need to read that. Very packed with with stuff. Uh, and I think it's a great book to read uh, before you start your day and just read like a page mm. of it. Um, that book, to me, I've read it multiple times. Uh, it's really good at helping you identify the mean voice in your head, the FOMO voice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it kind of reminds me, I think of what you, if, if you're saying what I think you're saying, it's like, I once told somebody, and this is true, I'm not making this up, that I spend, you know, the one person you spend all your time with is you. So if you can't be your own best friend, then you're going to have a, it's going to be a long life. Long haul. And when I told that to somebody who is a friend, they said to me, I'm my own worst enemy and I'm the one that's hardest on me. And it made me feel so sad. Because like when you're all alone, if you're with you and you're and you is being mean to you, like <laughs> it's really so I I don't mean to laugh, but like it was really a I never really thought about that. I've always just been that's always been something I believed is a kind yeah. of a basic for my life. And to think about people who are dealing with that made me feel a lot of understanding and empathy. Anything else you want to share before we wrap up? No, I think Plug, plug your stuff, if you would. Your podcast yeah. is called FOMO Sapiens. Yes. Uh, and what's your book that's out? So my book, the first one, which is about how to be an entrepreneur without quitting your day job. So that's what I learned from the financial crisis is called The 10% Entrepreneur. My new book, which is about fear of missing out and decision-making and how to be a more decisive person and overcome the FOMO, it's called Fear of Miss 
fear of missing out, practical decision-making in a world of overwhelming choice. And it came out in May of 2020 when nobody had FOMO, but if you have it now, it's, it's yes, available it's back. online, so go find it. Yeah, Patrick, thank you so much. Thank you. Many thanks to Patrick. And um, under the show notes, we put the names of those two books that uh, that he mentioned. And be sure uh, be sure, sure to check his books out and his website and uh, his social media stuff. We are sponsored this week by the Jordan Harbinger Show. Uh, Jordan's been a guest on this podcast, and uh, he's he's a great guy. Great interview. I've been a guest on on his podcast as well, and. Uh, He's been he's been crushing it for years. His podcast was named uh, uh, one of the top podcasts by uh, Apple in 2018. Uh, he has really fascinating guests. Uh, a couple of recent episodes, he had Dwayne Wade, the NBA superstar, on, uh, who talks about having imposter syndrome. Uh, he had Richard Clark on, who is uh, kind of a foreign policy anti-terrorism uh, expert, who's written some amazing books slew of amazing guests and Jordan's just uh he's a great guy very smart very funny and I think one of the things that makes his podcast great is he always pulls little nuggets of wisdom from the from the interviews and he really helps people cultivate uh critical thinking so uh check it out you can't go wrong with adding the Jordan Harbinger show to your rotation it's incredibly interesting there's never a dull show search for the Jordan Harbinger show that's h a r b as in boy i n as in nancy g e r on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts a group of chicago gangsters began as counterfeiters but in a desperate bid to save their crumbling criminal empire they would become grave robbers Hi, I'm Lindsey Graham, the host of Wondery's show, American History Tellers. We take you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In our latest series, we recount one of the most audacious would-be heists in American history, a scheme to raid Abraham Lincoln's tomb, steal his corpse, and hold it for ransom. Listen to The Plot to Steal Lincoln's Body by following American History Tellers on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you're listening now. Let's dive into some some surveys, huh? I mean, why are we going to sit around and waste fucking time when I got a handful of surveys I could be diving into? That would be stupid. This is from the Babysitter Survey. This is filled out by a woman who calls herself BB, and uh, she's straight in her 40s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, uh, was the victim of sexual abuse uh, outside of events described here, and uh, she never reported them. Um, she writes, uh, My sister was usually in charge of babysitting me, and she got me into masturbating with her and her friends. Uh did something uh, and then she says I wanted it to happen after the first few times because I would come uh, did you ever tell anyone did you think it was normal do you believe it had any effect on you I did not tell an adult however I did end up doing this with most of my friends before the age of 11 now I feel like a predator did I hurt anyone question mark uh, remembering these things what feelings come up shame regret being taken advantage of and turned into a creep. Do you feel any damage was done? 
I wonder where my sister learned to do this with other people. I know playing doctor is a normal kid thing, but this felt really fucked up looking back. Thank you for sharing that. And, um, you know, uh, uh, a great example of that, the complexity of violations, abuse, whatever whatever you want to call it. This is from the love survey filled out by Walking Contradiction, and they write, I work in a psychiatric hospital, and although I maintain a level of professionalism, I love when I'm having a laugh with a patient, and they ask me if I'm a patient rather than staff because I'm showing my lighthearted and humorous side. It warms my heart because it reinforces how important it is to be real and show that I'm a human in order to build strong therapeutic relationships. Can I even begin to describe how much I love that one? That just, that is like Christmas when I read that because I read so many surveys where people had horrible experiences when they were in psychiatric uh, facilities. Oh my God. I want to make a balloon out of this and send it into the sky. I don't know what that would do. Make me feel good. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Empty. He uh, has never been sexually abused or emotionally or physically abused. Uh, he identifies as uh, other. He is in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment. Darkest thoughts? I often wonder what it takes for people to do awful things. I'm scared that I'll feel so angry at the world, eventually I'll do something awful. Darkest secrets? I cross-dressed from as young as I can remember. I have to imagine I am a woman to orgasm. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. My sexuality has always felt related to a female body that I don't have. In early sex dreams, I imagined the physical sensations of being penetrated rather than doing the penetration. While feeling attracted to females during my childhood and teens, I struggled to maintain my erection during sex as an adult because my sexual urges feel so far divorced from the sensations of my penis. I can only orgasm if I imagine I am a woman. It's my imagination that turns me on and leads to things happening down there rather than any physical sensation. After one too many embarrassing moments in my late teens and early 20s, I left relationships behind completely, leaving me to indulge whatever my sexuality is during masturbation. The best way to describe it is that I have a phantom vagina. Aside from this, I had a picture-perfect childhood full of love and support. A normal boy doing stereotypically boy things and enjoying it. But my sexuality has destroyed it all. It was a puncture that arose the first time I came, and ever since, it, is being, it has been emptying the life out of me. 
directing my brain to places where there is no satisfaction. The best way to describe it is like I have a phantom vagina and the sexual urges that come with it, but it exists only in my head so it can never be satisfied. And yet I am turned on all the time, living in a constant nightmare of unfulfilled sexual desire. I try my best to ignore it and build myself up to happiness through other things in my life, only for my sexual urges to destroy everything over and over again. I am 29 and going nowhere fast. And that's as far as... Uh, oh, uh, have you shared these things with others? Yes, I spoke to three therapists. It didn't go great. I had trouble finding people who I thought wouldn't be out of their depth. I sought out the most qualified for the subject matter that I could. The second person I spoke to was a counselor who I spoke to at length and was by far the most positive experience. However, what I'm dealing with feels so complex that I'm not really sure there's an answer to it at all, and talking to people only reinforced that. How do you feel after writing these things down better? Oh, buddy, I want to give you a hug, man. I can't imagine what it is like going through what you are going through. And I imagine there must be times when you just feel so hopeless and alone. And I just want to send you some love. And, you know, it's, it's, I'm not a therapist, but I have to believe that there is some sort of help for you to, to feel what you want to feel emotionally. Um, and I don't know what that route looks like, who you would contact, any of that. I have no clue. Um, we did have a guest on, um, and I'm spacing out on Lauren's last name. Um, Lauren uh, was born female-bodied, and uh, he described to me the kind of the reverse of what you described to me. Lauren describes um, feeling a, a phantom penis, um, much as you describe feeling a phantom vagina. And you know what? If you email me, um, I'll see if I, if I can put you in touch with Lauren. And I don't know. I'm I'm your 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 survey really um, it moved me. It moved me. This is from the love survey filled out by Dyer Wolf Mom. And uh, she writes, I love watching my boyfriend play Dungeons and Dragons. I didn't play much before I met him, but now I play weekly with his friends. And it's so much fun being invited into one of his favorite pastimes and seeing how much joy it brings him. I'm usually 10 steps behind trying to remember what my character can even do. Meanwhile, he's casting spells, dodging attacks, and bantering with the game master about the rules for long-range combat. He's a big nerd, and I love seeing him in his happy place. Ah, I love that. Never played Dungeons & Dragons. I think I would probably like it because I love the game Civilization. Oh my god, I've been playing Civilization every night. For about six months. It just, it itches a part of my brain that is just dopamine central, man. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by Ray. And uh, Ray identifies as straight. She's in her 50s, was raised in a pretty dysfunctional environment. 
was the vic- was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And she writes, I've recently come to terms with facing the realities of the abuse from my narcissistic parents. I thought that I had done a pretty good job of addressing the abuse until I happened to listen to your risk story of covert sexual abuse, and I completely lost it and broke down in sobs. Here, I thought I was being super brave and courageous and facing the demons of my abuse, and I got hit so damn hard by the story, I was unprepared to deal with it. Feeling all the feels and hoping that I can get on with my growth, knowing that there can be no other aspect of abuse left to face. Uh, She's been emotionally abused. She writes, my narcissistic parents took my life away from me. I finally went no contact with them and have been educating myself and others about the abuse for a good year now. At the age of 50, I struggled with choosing them or myself and finally chose myself, but it hasn't been a no-brainer decision. Strength is a difficult thing to find. Any positive experiences with the abusers? I realized that there would only be cons if I allowed continued contact and trusted that there were possibilities of pros. One day at a time and reminding myself that I deserve to try and reminding myself that I deserve to try is sometimes the best I can do to move forward. Darkest thoughts, suicide and wishing for death. Darkest secrets, I struggle daily with self-care and have developed agoraphobic tendencies, which um, are really common for people who have uh, experienced sexual abuse. Uh, I'm I'm glad that you got to hear uh, me telling that story on uh, the Risk podcast. Um, I I know what it is like to be in the dark about your own sexual abuse for decades, and to feel so baffled by why we think and act and feel the way we do, and then one day it just kind of comes to a head, and yeah, it's an overwhelming feeling of sadness and confusion. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Being in the care of a caring dom who I could completely surrender myself to that would provide for my needs, it scares the hell out of me to imagine that level of trust and intimacy. If you shared these things with others, I've attempted explaining the abuse to others who know my parents and have been ridiculed for it. They have so many people snowed that my non-contact means anyone they know. How do you feel after writing these things down? I feel both empowered and debilitated at the same time. That would be a good name for a double album, Empowered and Debilitated. First half, fucking empowering. Second album, pretty debilitating. A lot of minor keys, a little dissonance. Or maybe you mix it up, and the one that's called empowering, you make debilitating. Because boy, wouldn't that debilitate them? They're expecting something empowering. Here you come, around the corner, the handful of debilitation. But uh, in, in all seriousness, I'm really glad that you filled this survey out, and I'm glad that you are speaking your fucking truth, and that you have found the courage to choose your mental health and to advocate for yourself. And yeah, people don't understand. A friend of my mom's just kept contacting me through Facebook trying to get me to re 
reconnect with my mom. And I was just like, you know, this woman worked in a hospital. And uh, I said, let's, if you were a nurse, and, uh, or let's say you were the administrator at your hospital, and one of the nurses was uh, taking uh, an eight year old child's temperature rectally for no reason, would you keep that nurse on staff? She didn't answer me. This is from the Love Survey, uh, filled out by Dr. B. And they write, I love when someone else in my house changes the roll of toilet paper when it runs out. I love it when I gleek. This, I, I think that's when your uh, saliva glands uh, just kind of shoot a little uh, arc. Uh, this involuntary biological function of spit just amazes me. I love the sound of texting on my iPhone when I'm hooked up to Bluetooth in my car. Each keystroke plays that sound I imagine is the sound when raindrops hit ponds. I love smoking a cigarette on the side porch when my husband and kids aren't home, which happens like seven times a year, and then covering it up with Lysol spray and clever disposal of the butt. I feel like I've won a game, and that game would be called cancer. Boy, did I, boy, did I shit on your moment. Sorry about that. Uh, I like the toilet paper one. That's a, that's a, uh, and not only when they change the toilet paper, but they do it the right way with the paper coming from the top, not the fucking bottom. Don't even get me started on that. This is uh, from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Ding Dong, and he identifies as straight. He's in his 20s, was raised in a stable and safe environment, uh, never been sexually abused. Uh, he's only filled out part of this uh, and the darkest secrets part. He writes, uh, hi, Paul. Thank you for what you do. It's freaky how much Jesse Dean Altman's negative inner voice sounds like my own. One of my biggest shames has been my inability to connect with a woman and ultimately lose my virginity. And I am nearly 28. Two months ago, I was fortunate enough to meet someone and we began dating. She and I got close quickly and she would ask about my relationships and I would basically lie to her. She'd been very honest with me about her bad sexual encounters. I have to credit listening to many surveys for giving me a better understanding of her own shame as someone who had been taken advantage of. It was not until we had agreed on a date that we would both be ready for sex that I had to tell her the truth no matter the outcome. I drove to her place the night before and told her I was a virgin. To my relief, she did not leave me and was very understanding. We've had sex now, and all things considered, I feel lucky to have lost my virginity to someone I care about. That being said, the stigma will sit with me forever, but I was ready to give up on a love life, but now I can believe. And he's got believe in, in caps. Have you shared these things with others? I've only told therapists and one family member of my virginity. I was shaking when I told her, but through her kindness, I was able to calm down. How do you feel after writing these things down? Good. I needed to tell someone, exclamation point. Thank you. Thank you for that. And uh, it is not uncommon that I read surveys or get emails from people who talk about the shame they feel for being a virgin. And um, I have never heard anybody badmouth another human being for being a virgin. 
This is from the Shame and Secret Survey. This is filled out by um, a woman who calls herself I Didn't Jump. Uh, she identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, was raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment, was the victim of sexual abuse, and never reported it. She writes, My older brother, five years older, used to touch me when we were little. Well, I was about four to seven, which would make him nine to 12, and he would rub his genitals against mine. This went on sporadically for about two or three years before it stopped. I didn't really understand what was going on, and for me at the time, that was how I related with him. When it stopped, I kind of missed it. I recognized it for what it was now, but I have trouble reconciling the abuse with the image of my brother right now. He seems to have turned out just fine, and I'm wondering how this didn't fuck him up like it did me. I started having flashbacks last year, and so I went to therapy to start unpacking these things. I think I've made my peace with it now. I told my mom last year, but didn't get the response I felt I needed or wanted. I haven't confronted my brother and don't think I ever will. Apart from my first therapist, no one else knows. I haven't worked up to telling my new therapist yet. My first one moved, so I had to get a new one. Uh, she's never been physically abused. Not sure if she's been emotionally abused. Uh, she writes, I just felt like a lot of my emotional needs weren't met as a child. Um, yeah, you know, that question really should be, uh, have you ever been physically abused? Uh, abused or emotionally abused or neglected uh, because it it leaves the same they both leave scars whether it's abuse or neglect you can even say that neglect is a form of abuse uh, any positive experiences with the abusers yes my brother drives me around sometimes when I need it and he gets me nice things for my birthday it doesn't sound like I hear any that are emotional though it sounds like they're more kind of uh, um detached from from emotion uh, darkest thoughts sometimes I want to kill myself not because I can't go on I'm sure I can muster the strength but because I want my family to hurt like I do darkest secrets when I was little four or five I was with the son of one of our family friends he was still a toddler so he couldn't have been more than two I took away the bag of chips he was eating and proceeded to touch his genitals and only gave him back the chips when I was done Sometimes I wonder if he remembers and if I ever fucked him up for life, but I'm too chicken to reach out. I tell myself I'm doing him a favor because if he doesn't remember, it would be bringing on terrible memories. I don't I don't know what to, to uh, suggest as far as that, but I think a therapist uh, would probably help you uh, if you're if you're looking for uh, some type of closure. Uh, sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I have this fantasy of fucking my French teacher in his office. He's this tall Belgian guy who smokes, and he's got this amazing salt and pepper hair. It makes me feel low-key horny. Well, just remember, before you fuck a, a Belgian guy, move the waffle maker off the counter. So many people have hurt their lower backs, especially if the waffle maker's still on. Was that the dumbest joke that anybody's ever done on a podcast? I, I'd say that's got to be in the top five. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I want to ask my brother why he did that to me. Part of me wonders if it's a repressed memory and he doesn't remember. What, if anything, do you wish for? To leave the family space and move into my own space, preferably on another continent. 
Have you shared, I don't know why I pronounce continent like that, on another continent? Uh, have you shared these things with others, with my first therapist, and it felt good to unburden myself? How do you feel after writing these things down? At peace. Oh, do I love reading that. I love, not only do I love experiencing a catharsis, but seeing somebody else had a cathartic moment, even if it's brief. And then finally, this is uh, a happy moment, kind of a mixed happy moment, uh, filled out by Rosie. And she writes, uh, Hi, Paul. Like many listeners, I was dealt a challenging childhood, and I work hard on myself to be a better person. One of those areas which takes a lot of work to be better in is being a mother to my four-year-old daughter, as these skills were not taught very well to me. I find myself reparenting myself along the way. I joke about how I have two children, my daughter and my inner child self, who is coming along for the parenting ride. It was a rare rainy afternoon at home on the coast of Australia, and I sat watching a movie with my daughter. We were close to each other, touching arm to arm. We had chosen Encanto, a fairly new Disney family movie. The curtains were drawn and the volume was loud. This movie, Encanto, has some amazing songs in it. They were written by the same writer as Hamilton. Uh, about halfway through the movie, a song called Surface Pressure came on, and just unexpectedly hit me right in the deepest parts of my body, like one of those moments etched into life where the feelings are so strong and visceral, it feels like it has changed something inside you forever. Something I really, really struggle with is perfectionism. This stems from being the, quote, perfect child in the family to keep everyone together by always getting straight A's by dealing with everyone's problems, by singing and dancing on demand, by advising my parents on life choices, by caring for my siblings, by winning every race, by always making everything easier for those around me, and by always, always, always smiling to my parents, to my teachers, to my sexual abuser. Inside of me, of course, there was a whole other world going on, which is taking an adulthood to unravel. The song Surface Pressure just encapsulated it so well. And as I sat there with my little girl, who I worked so goddamn hard to be a good mother to, and to never, ever let her feel she has to be anything or to do anything other than be just a child, I felt overwhelming grief for my inner child, who had such a different experience. And I also felt such pride and joy for the mother I am, so that my daughter beside me, her arm touching mine, is able to be a child. Just a child. Fuck. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you. Damn. That was beautiful. Beautiful. And thank you to everyone that fills the surveys out. You're such a big part of the show, especially the people whose whose surveys I never I never read on air. There's just too many. You know the shame and secret survey. Um, I'm four years behind on reading. So the a lot of the surveys that I read uh, from from that particular one are everyone is dead. That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm trying to say. Is if you hear a shame and secret survey be assured that person is no longer with us. And that's what I want you to take from this week's episode.
is I want you to feel sad. I want you leaving much sadder than you came in. You're probably thinking, how could that be possible? Us listeners are the saddest fucking lot on the face of the earth. Well, not after I get done with you. (laughs) How am I going to pull out of this tailspin? Oh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And I'm just really, really grateful for everyone that, that helps this show, whether you're a donor or a survey filler outer or somebody who shares this podcast with a friend or spreads the word or just if if it fucking helps you you know i'm grateful and just never forget you're not alone and thanks for listening Everybody I know is bizarrely beautiful. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.